You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Knowing the risk factors for suicide, recognizing warning signs, and taking appropriate action are the best ways to prevent suicide. Depression is one of the greatest risk factors for suicide, and studies have found that physicians do not recognize or treat 40 to 60% of patients with depression. How and when should clinicians include a risk assessment for suicide in their practice? And how can medical professionals enlist others to be on the lookout for warning signs that someone might be contemplating suicide? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta, Georgia, is psychiatrist Stephen Garlow of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Garlow. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Garlow, can we begin our discussion of suicide prevention by going over some of the basics? Sure. How prevalent is suicide, and how prevalent are suicide attempts? Yeah, those are excellent questions, and they have two different answers, really. Suicide is overall the 11th leading cause of death in the United States. Approximately one person in the United States kills themselves every 16 minutes, more or less, depending on the age. But that risk is not universal across all ages. For young people, for adolescents, young adults, it's either the third or second leading cause of death. And for old people as well, it rises to one of the higher leading causes of death. The risk is highest on a capitated basis in elderly males. And how are we defining elderly at what age? Well, it depends. Either 65 and above or 85 and above in the old, old, and in particular white males are at extremely high risk. Let's talk about the warning signs of suicide. The risks for suicide, for completed suicide, are there are what we refer to as modifiable risk factors or modifiable warning signs and some that are not. So certain things you can't really change, like being male increases risk, being older increases risk, being white increases risk. None of those are really changeable. But things that we should be looking for in a person as a physician, as a clinician, should be a high degree of distress, what's referred to sometimes as psychic pain or psychic tension, a high degree of anxiety, a high degree of restlessness, affective instability, that is, the person's emotions they burst out into tears easily. There's just no gating, no control on their emotional state are the herald state that really puts a person at risk. That's a very high-risk state. Regardless of whether the person is saying, oh, I'm feeling suicidal or not, certainly the presence of suicidal ideation is a risk factor we should always be looking for. And as clinicians, as medical practitioners, we should never be shy about asking about it. If we don't ask, our patients won't ever tell. You're describing the symptoms of clinical depression here. More than just depression, really looking for somebody who's really stirred up, who's feeling that there's no way out, there's no escape, there's no solution, overwhelmed, feelings of tremendous distress, coupled with feelings of depression. Now, depression in and of itself increases risk. So people who are sad and feeling forlorn and feeling helpless and having sleep disturbance, all the classic symptoms of depression that we think about are part of the problem, are part of what we're looking for. But on top of that, looking for a person who's anxious and agitated and restless and can't sit still, and their emotions can't sit still either, that's a person who's at very high risk. Mm -hmm. So even among those who are depressed, we can further distinguish even beyond suicidal ideation and look at the quality of their affect. Right. Unfortunately, suicidal ideation does not have a great deal of specificity in terms of identifying people who ultimately commit suicide. It's a fairly common occurrence in people, and it's part of the definition of Uh, major depression, and people who have depression will have thoughts of death and suicidal ideation. 
ultimately everybody who kills themselves at some point has to have thought, I'm going to kill myself, but most everybody who thinks that does not go on to end up dying by suicide. And you mentioned that state of extreme agitation. Can it almost also be the flip side where someone is so lethargic and hopeless? And Hopeless is the word. Not so much lethargic, but hopeless. A person who has developed hopelessness and then comes to this as a solution to this hopelessness, that would be another common state. That's a very hard one to pick up for clinicians because that's a person who is probably not going to come to our attention. They're probably not going to end up in our office or in our consultation because of that, they're not going to come in front of us. We need to be sensitive to it, to be looking for it. person comes to the office, comes to a physician's office to be looking for that kind of a mood state, that kind of emotional state. But very often, that's a person who is going to do something in a kind of an organized fashion to kill themselves and never have told anybody about it. And that leads me to think of this other phenomenon that happens that's kind of tricky, and it's that switch in affect that can occur in a patient right before a suicide attempt. Right. That's been recognized for many years, especially people treated for depression, that when they start getting better, for some reason, maybe they have more energy, they have more motivation, but at some or maybe they suffer some minor, they're feeling better and then suffer some minor setback. But early on in their course of recovery, a window of risk opens that they can respond and then and end up killing themselves on the upswing when they're getting better, as opposed to when they're down at the very bottom. Clinicians often have such brief contact with patients, and sometimes those at risk for suicide hesitate to disclose all of these symptoms that we've been discussing. And it's just not as easily detectable as an obvious physical condition would be. What do you think the clinician's responsibility is when it comes to assessment and education? Well, I'm a psychiatrist, so every patient I see is subject to a suicide risk assessment that's central to psychiatric practice, central to the mental status examination that I would conduct on patients for somebody who's not in a mental health setting, being aware of it, being, like I said earlier, not shy about asking about it and being explicit. You can't speak in euphemisms. You have to speak very directly. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Questions like that around that type of how is your mood? How is your sleeping? Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling desperate? Well, one of the things I think that happens in a lot of practices is because we don't have so much time, we don't want to open that door. Suddenly a patient's unstable. They're having a strong affective response, and it's going to take up more time. We have to get on to the next patient. That can be difficult. That's one of the tensions that we all face in practice nowadays. Right, but it's just too important not to. Yeah. Do you also feel that physicians, psychiatrists, and other types of physicians have any kind of responsibility to educate the population in general, not just those who you think might be thinking about this, but just whoever comes across your path so that more eyes are looking out for the signs and symptoms? Oh, absolutely. I think this is something that we as physicians and we as psychiatrists, I think, have to do a better job of educating the larger medical community about the signs of depression, the risk factors for suicide, to encourage people to be frank in their discussions of it, to not be afraid to talk about it or to be embarrassed to talk about it, to be forthright as well. I think we have an obligation to have outreach and education to the community as well, to the lay community, to the patient community. I feel for me, one of my obligations is to be available to do speaking, to go to organizations and various types of entities and talk about suicide, suicide risk, and not professional entities, lay organizations of various types to talk about getting their involvement in prevention efforts and those sorts of things.
If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is psychiatrist Stephen Garlow, and we are discussing the assessment of suicide risk. Dr. Garlow, you just mentioned, you know, educating the lay community, and if physicians are going to hesitate at times to talk about the subject, it's very understandable that others would be as well. Can you talk about the second important part of suicide prevention, and that's taking appropriate action. What is the recommended advice for clinicians and then for lay people? Appropriate action can be defined along a wide spectrum. It can be as much as hospitalizing the person, making a strong intervention if the person's imminently at risk. It can be recommending the person get into treatment, encouraging the person to get into treatment, making some definitive step towards treatment. The one thing to keep in mind is depression is a very treatable condition. Most suicidal crises are transient, and if we can help safe harbor that person through that crisis, that's a life saved. One of the things that we as physicians need to talk about, again, in terms of with our patients looking at suicide risk assessment, we always have to ask about things like weapons in the home and unsecured medication in the home, both to the patient directly as well as to their family. If there's a, The one thing that we can do to help safeguard a person is to minimize access to easily used and high lethality means. That typically means firearms and unsecured medication. So to have frank conversations about those things with our patients, with their families, to help keep a person safe. If a person's unsure, they should seek help. If they perceive that it's a real crisis, to call 911, to call for emergency help, to get the person to kind of secure, in a kind of secure environment that'll help maybe save a life. It's better in this case to always err on the side of sort of overreaction, I think, than underreaction. Right. So encouraging people that it's okay to overstep. Absolutely. It absolutely is okay. And it's appropriate intervention. And mental illness is illness. It's illness like any other illness. It's no different than hypertension or diabetes or any other chronic illness that other physicians treat that's common in all medical practices. To view mental illnesses as illnesses is, I think, if we can encourage that attitude and that idea, there should be no more stigma in being treated for mental illness than there is in being treated for diabetes or being treated for hypertension or being treated for arthritis. Those are all chronic illnesses that can all potentially have fatal outcomes, and, and there should be no real impediment to, to getting treatment for any, any condition. And so I think that's the other thing that we can do as any type of physician or any type of healthcare practitioner, and that's to work to minimize stigma, to be matter-of-fact about treating mental illnesses in exactly the same way as any other illness. Right. You mentioned some of the factors in the home life that could increase the risk for suicide weapons in the home, family violence, things like that. And another big risk factor that we haven't talked about is a previous suicide attempt. And, you know, questions about previous suicide attempts are not necessarily a routine part of a medical history that is gathered. How can the clinician be certain to be aware of such important information about certain individuals? Again, it's, if we don't ask about it, we'll never know about it. And the only way to know about it is to ask and to ask directly about it and to not be shy, to not be embarrassed. Again, this is one of the places where you, we cannot speak in euphemisms. We have to be very direct about it. If we hear about some type of episode of deliberate self-harm of some kind, you say, well, what was your intention? Did you really mean to die when you took those pills or when you did whatever the act was? And then to explore that and to bring that out. And it's better actually to talk about that and to talk about it openly than not. And if, if you can be a little bit in front of them and bring them forward, that can give them an opportunity to start talking about it as well and to have their emotional state known about it. That's one of the risk factors when I spoke before about non-modifiable risk factors that have a previous suicide attempt. 
increases risk, but we have to know about it, but we also can't change it, but we do have to know about it. In addition to directly questioning patients, are there any pen and paper screening instruments that clinicians can use? There are a number of scales that can be used. There is something called the MDQ, the Mood Disorder Questionnaire, that's commonly used, especially in primary care type, family practice type clinics. That's a self-reported instrument. There's something called the PHQ-9, which we utilized in our study. And that's, again, it's a self-reported instrument that looks at basically samples all the symptoms of depression, the nine domains of depression. There are others. There are a number of different scales for suicide risk assessment. In terms of identifying people who are a suicide risk, they are all sensitive, but they are not specific. That is, they cast a very wide net and they identify a large at-risk pool, but it's much more difficult to identify real individuals who are at specific risk. Well, these are excellent things for clinicians to keep in mind as they're attempting to do a better job of assessment of suicide risk. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Stephen Garlow, psychiatrist with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Garlow. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This is William Swigert with the Center for Professional Health at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals.